Here we go. All right. Good morning again, everyone. This is Prophets in Context. Here's what I'm hoping we can do this summer, is take one of the most confusing, hard-to-read, forgotten, misunderstood, and blind spots of the Bible, which is the Old Testament prophets. Basically, everything from Isaiah to Malachi, which constitutes about 25% of the Bible. And by talking about the historic situation in which it's said that somehow what you're reading goes from being groping around blindly in the dark to something that you can kind of really get the richness out of and what these prophets and, 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 and men and women of God are talking about and how pertinent their message still is today. We've spent the last few weeks setting up some overviews and then went into Isaiah chapter 7 last week in particular. This week, we're moving along the timeline, if you will, to the next major prophet, and that prophet is Jeremiah. So if you know the biblical order of books, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then tucked in there is this little poem called Lamentations, which is like Jeremiah part two, okay? And then you get Ezekiel, Daniel, and then what's known as the Twelve. And the Twelve are a collection of twelve smaller, or what are often called minor prophets, not because they dig in the ground and look for gold and ore and things like that, but because they are small in length compared to these big mothers like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the twelve, just so you know how to pronounce them, are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. God invented tables of contents to help you, so, you know, use that. But we're moving into Jeremiah today, and Jeremiah is the treasonous prophet. We're ahead in the timeline now, and I've given you two anchor dates um, that I said, know these dates because you can divide biblical history into three major periods if you have these two intervening anchor points. Quiz time, does anyone remember what the dates are? Shout them out if you got them. 587 BC or 86, either one is acceptable because with ancient dates there's often a little discrepancy. So 587 or 6 BC, what's the other? And both revolve around the same event, which is the destruction of Jerusalem just by different people. 587 BC, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. 70 AD, Rome destroys Jerusalem. And this has a seismic impact on how the people of God understand themselves, understand themselves in relation to God, how they worship God, seek God, find God in their life, and all this kind of stuff. It divides it into these three major sections. Jeremiah is the prophet of this date. Isaiah was arguably like 740, 730, 720 B.C., we're jumping ahead in the timeline now by about 150 years. And we come to Jeremiah, who's the prophet that's, that's primarily responsible for bringing the word of God to people in light of this huge, I cannot overestimate how big this event is, this Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And his call is really what people would call treason. Today as well as back then. Because while the city is trying to hold on and the king is trying to keep people rallied and as the people in government are trying to keep morale high, 
Jeremiah is tasked with the job of going around the city's lost. Give up. Put down your arms. Get off the wall. Anyone who stands and fight is going to be slaughtered because God's hand is against you. But anyone who gives over to the Babylonians, well, maybe you'll still find a path forward of life and safety and possibly even a future with God. Talk about a treasonous message. Am I right? And so much of what Jeremiah faces is coming head to head with the king who's trying to keep Jerusalem intact while this man of God is undermining him every step of the way. And by the way, for those of you who struggle with the weight of life, who struggle with depression, who struggle with the torment of the soul that often goes along with, with, with a dark future and a dark calling and a dark disposition. Jeremiah is your guy. I think you will identify. Uh, he, he's the prophet. I think it's Jeremiah 20, for example, where he just cries out to God, you deceived me. I dared listen to you and you set me up for failure and I try to run for you, but my bones burn against me. So I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't because when I run, I can't escape you. But when I seek you, it only means ruin and misery for me. Can you identify with that at any point in your life? Jeremiah is the man for you. What we're going to do today is go through the historic context of Jeremiah so that when you dare read this book, hopefully you have a little bit of traction under your feet. Because I will tell you, I think Jeremiah is the most confusing of all the prophets in the Old Testament. It's not written chronologically. It seems to be a collection of oracles and stories that are pieced together in different thematic elements. Jeremiah arguably dies halfway before the book is over, and you're like, how does that work and fit into this kind of thing? And you just get into there, and you're like, oh, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, and then it all unravels on you, and then you slog through 20 more chapters, and okay, I'm getting it, I'm getting it, and then it, be patient with yourself with Jeremiah, give yourself a lot of grace with Jeremiah, but there is so much richness in Jeremiah and if you know this, you'll have enough to get what you need out of this prophet. So, as always, let's look at the first couple of verses that we often like to blow by because they never make great life verses, but they do set the stage for us. Jeremiah 1. It's, the couple, it, it, it's that opening prologue, you know? Here's what it says. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. It's gripping stuff, isn't it? But it is important. Let's do a little bit of family tree work, and then let's just observe some things we can see in this passage alone. We see that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the 13th year of Josiah. Josiah is one of those few Judean kings who gets that little phrase in the book of Kings, and he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Virtually every other king of Judah gets the phrase, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
but not Josiah. Josiah is a rare one. He did good in the eyes of the Lord. Let me explain to you the situation of what's going on with Josiah and what happened. Now, you might remember from Isaiah that Isaiah opens up with a very similar kind of, um, you know, um, not a postscript, what do you call it, a prologue, so to speak, or an introductory statement where he says it's four kings. Isaiah is in the reign of um, Azariah, as he's called in kings, or Uzziah, as Isaiah will call him, and the kings of, um, you know, and I just kind of blanked on it, it's, it's uh, Ahab and, uh, or Ahaz and uh, Hezekiah, who's the one I'm missing? Jotham. Thank you. So you got Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Ahaz was a bad king, Hezekiah was a good king. Okay? From Hezekiah, just go with me, you go to Manasseh. And Manasseh is the bad of the bad, the worst of the worst. In fact, it's because of Manasseh, and I'll read this passage to you specifically, it comes out of 2 Kings 21, verse 17. 2 Kings 21, verse 17, as a result of Manasseh, if I can flip there, we're getting there. And I'm guessing it's 17. Verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. And you can read about them earlier. He has done more evil than the Amorites. You know who the Amorites are? Remember all those like Canaan people, those Canaanite people at the conquest of Joshua who God said, I'm sending you into this land to displace these Canaanite people because their wickedness is so bad? Judah has become worse than the Canaanites. And the works of Manasseh are the quintessential worse, even than the Amorites. And that's meant to make you go like this. Ooh. All right? So just remember that. Who preceded him and who had led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring, the measuring line used against Samaria. Remember Samaria fell in 722 BC? Now I am going to use the same measure of judgment against Judah and against that I used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You get the image here? You ever like do dishes? Dry? No. <laughs> Have you ever seen them done? It's, it's a beautiful sight to behold, isn't it, when someone else does the dishes? The image is I'm going to take Jerusalem and no spot is going to be left untouched. The destruction I am going to bring on Jerusalem is as thorough, not when your 13-year-old does the dishes, but like when your mom does the dish. right? No spot will be untouched inside and out. I am going to overturn this city and bring my destruction on it. That's the image that's getting set up here. I will forsake, this is Yahweh speaking, I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger from the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sins that he had committed, caused Judah to commit. 
so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's not just Judah doing evil, it's Manasseh leading the way. And you can read about the stories of what he's done with forsaking Yahweh, idolatry, sacrificing children to Molech. I mean, it just goes on and on, the injustice, the victims that he heaped up, the bloodshed. And God said, that's it. This is right after Hezekiah. Hezekiah, who was a good king, it goes to Manasseh. And right after Manasseh, that's it. Jerusalem is destroyed. God declared it. It's going to happen. Manasseh, by the way, is also attributed, not in the Bible, but according to tradition, with murdering Isaiah. Like, you never really know what happens to Isaiah, but tradition has it in, like, the logs of the martyrs and things like that, that what he did is he took Isaiah, got sick of his message, so he had him sawn in two. So this gives you a sense of what this guy is like. Manasseh goes to Ammon, A-M-O-N, and then we find ourselves at Josiah. So there's kind of the connectivity of the storyline. But Josiah is not like Manasseh. He's called a good king. Anyone want to guess how old he is when he takes the throne? Eight years old. How about putting your country's future in those hands? And there's something, I think, both ironic but poignant in the biblical story, how God often chooses the lowest of the low and the weakest of the weak and the most insignificant of the most insignificant to do his work. And it's through an eight-year-old boy that Jerusalem finds a hope. One of the things that happens in Josiah's story is about five years into his reign, they find what is called the Book of the Law which basically means they didn't even like have the Mosaic Law anymore. It was so forgotten, so out of use. It was maybe tucked away somewhere, like hidden in the archives somewhere, or like lost in the temple somewhere. That's how far Judah got from any kind of connectivity from the message and word of God. And Josiah finds it, and they start reading what seems to be Deuteronomy. And they start getting convicted, going, oh my gosh, we are so far afield from what God wants. Because most people think that what God wants is what feels right in their heart. And be very careful of your heart. Jeremiah himself will say that the heart is a deceitful thing. Jeremiah has a very different picture of the human heart than most people today in society do. And actually most Christians do today who think, oh, I'll just follow my heart because my heart will lead me to goodness. My heart will lead me to truth. Be careful of that. The heart is a deceitful thing and they were following their hearts, what seemed right in their own eyes. And it led them to a path of destruction. And they find Deuteronomy, and there's this renewal of the covenant that Josiah starts to work. And in the 13th year of his reign, Jeremiah comes into his calling. And Josiah is granted a reprieve. What God does, and we're not going to take time to look at the passage, but what God does is he comes to Jeremiah And he says, I want you to go to Josiah and say, because of the way you followed me, this destruction I promised is not going to come around in your lifetime. So it's interesting that God will often commit or or, or, or declare these statements of judgment, but he'll allow it to be staved off until the future if he sees repentance and goodness and things happening in the intervening time. And Josiah buys that time. But after Josiah, and he gets killed in battle, by the way, against the Egyptians, um, it all spirals out of control again. 
And we see that Jeremiah is also in the reigns of Jehoiakim, who is whose son? Josiah's son. Down to what? Um, Zedekiah. Whose son is that? All right. And there's an intervening king called Jehoiachin, not to be confused with Jehoiakim, all right, because it ain't confusing enough already, who's also related to Josiah. And so what you see is it's like after Josiah, it's just going through his kids, going through his kin, going through his line. No one holds the... Some of these people are holding the throne for three months, okay? And it just spirals out of control after Josiah. It's about a 40-year period of time. If you were to start at the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, all the way through the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah. It's a little over 40 years long. So it's long like Isaiah was long, right? And here's what I want you to do to help you understand the nature of how this prophet is going to have to write. And here's a date I want to give you. 1979. I'm just curious, who was born after 1979? All right, do your best. (laughs) Think about if there was a prophet, or maybe even say a pastor or something like that, who was charged to speak into the cultural and political situation from 1979 up until today. Do you think that message would look exactly the same? Think about some of the events that have happened since 1979. November of 1979 was the whole Iran hostage situation, right? Carter administration, Reagan comes to power later on, you go through the 80s. I mean, what are other significant events? You have um, Kuwait that comes about in the 90s, right? Saddam Hussein, then Saddam Hussein part two, right? You have 9-11, that comes along in there. You have like the Oklahoma City bombing that comes in there. You have other terrorist attacks in the 90s. These things get forgotten like the USS Cole and ships like that. Then of course we have the 2000s Iraq. We have Afghanistan. We have the cultural shifts. Think about the 80s versus the 90s to the 2000s to today. The various cultural shifts that are happening on the landscape. What's right? What's wrong? What occupies our time? 1979 abortion is the big discussion piece, right? Compared to something like 2016, where um, the LGBT movement is the big legal discussion piece, which would never have even been a thought in 1979. There's different kinds of other political things that are happening, other cultural things that are happening. How varied would the message of that prophet have to be as he contextualizes the word of God to all those situations. It would be crazy, and you can kind of wrap your mind in that, can't you, a little bit? Well, Jeremiah's message is about 42, 43 years long. It's the exact same thing as though someone was commanded with this task from 1979, roughly until today. As you're reading the prophet, don't expect it to all sound the same. Don't expect it to all look the same because things change and you have to speak into particular situations as things develop. So allow that to kind of guide you. And what I find most helpful when I read Jeremiah is actually read this right alongside of it and maybe read it first 
Now, I've shared with you before that the book of Chronicles parallels the book of Kings, like Mark parallels Matthew and so forth. But 2 Kings 22 to 25 will start you at the beginning of Josiah's reign and take you all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem. Chronicles in these chapters 34 to 36 will roughly do the same. And I think, honestly, you'll get more out of reading that than you will even the prophet Jeremiah. But certainly if you start there, Jeremiah becomes all the more rich. Now, all that kind of situation said, I gave you a date of 587 BC. Now I want to qualify it. Because when I talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, we think about it almost like as a one-day event, don't we? Or like a, a one-month event or something like that. Oh, it's 587. The troops showed up. They surrounded the city. They attacked. Boom, victory. It's done. The siege of Jerusalem took 20 years. So the events surrounding the attack on Jerusalem was a 20-year process in the making. And I don't want to drown you with too many dates, but I think this will be helpful to understand the prophets because we talk about the Babylonian exile, which means that when Babylon attacked Jerusalem, they burned it to the ground, they razed everything, they plundered the city, and they sent all the inhabitants out into exile, which said, they, you can't live here anymore. You're coming back as prisoners of war with us into Babylon, and you're going to live in kind of like ghettos kind of like the Nazis did with Jews in Poland and places like that before the concentration camps where they started kind of keeping them in their neighborhoods. That's what they did with the Jews in Babylon and other Babylonian provinces. But there was three waves of that. And this will help you understand the rest of the prophets. The first wave was about 605 BC. So roughly 18 years before. And you guys know that the story of Daniel, the prophet Daniel? That's actually when Daniel and his friends got carried off into exile, 20 years before the complete destruction. And then about 597 BC, it happened again. And that's when the prophet Ezekiel got carried off into exile, and you can read his story. Well, Jeremiah doesn't get carried off into any of those, so he's giving us the third and final wave which is arguably the worst of the waves in 587. So you have this staggered tier exile, and this is why it works that way. Because when the big baddie on the block comes around demanding tribute, you acquiesce. And then they move on to the next town, and you start kind of feeling like pretty good about yourself and pretty brave. And you're like, well, you don't need to do this anymore. We could stand against them, and maybe we're too small to notice, and he won't come our way again. And so they rebel, and Nebuchadnezzar's got to get his troops together, and they come back, and they go, okay, that's strike one. And they send a wave into exile. Don't do it again, and they levy a heavier tribute. We're not going to do that again. And five years goes by, seven years, eight years, nine years. But about ten years later, they start getting a little too big for their britches again, and they start feeling a little too confident again, and they rebel again. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, does the same thing, strike two. Okay? How many strikes until you're out? 587 BC is strike three by Nebuchadnezzar. I'm dealing with this anymore, and you're never going to rebel against me again 
the city is torn to the ground, and every inhabitant that could possibly dare to rebel is sent out into exile into our home country to be under the surveillance and watch of our people and hopefully absorbed into our people and patriated into our people so that they don't become an identifiable people group anymore. This is the strategy of exile. And this is why it's so significant. I want to show you five things. Sorry. Five key markers that are worth your time to know. Five key markers of God's presence before 587 BC. Let me put this another way. How do you know God is with you? Maybe you don't. But what do you tend to lean on? Yeah. Well, for us, it's very internal. It's very internal for us, isn't it? For them, it's... It's very external. You got it. You got it. For us, it's very internal. Maybe there's some uncertainty. Maybe there's some doubt. Maybe, maybe you even kind of despise the idea that, no, how can I know God's with me? But I just kind of hope. It's very fashionable today to be kind of, you know, uncommitted. Um, it is. Maybe you cling to a feeling inside. Maybe you cling to what other people say about you, particularly respected people. Maybe you cling to a promise of God, and it's like a Bible verse that you've memorized. Maybe you cling to something a little bit more external, like, like a sacramental rite, like a baptism or a confirmation. Um, maybe you cling to your own sense of goodness. Well, I do good things, and I want to do good things, so therefore God must be working in me. You know, those, you know everyone kind of has this, but, but there are some commonalities for every day and age. And right around 587 BC, there was five key things by which God said, you know that I will be with you. These are things that I've attached my promise to. These are where I've said I'd work and I'd set myself up and I'd establish myself. The Ark of the Covenant, the land, Jerusalem, king, and temple. When you're in the land, and Jerusalem is intact, and the king is on the throne, and the temple is operating, and the Ark of the Covenant is there, you have all the things that God attached himself to, his promise and his presence, and you know he's among you. Why is 587 B.C. so devastating? Because every single thing got destroyed. The king is thrown off his throne. Zedekiah is actually, he watches all his sons be slayed before him and they put out his eyes so it's the last thing he sees is his line being destroyed, not to mention his own children. Jerusalem is finally plundered. The temple is burned to the ground and every piece of treasure is carried off. The land, you can't live in it anymore. You've been sent out of the promised land, that great land that, from the time of Abraham, I said I would give you as an inheritance. You're gone. You're out of here. I love how Leviticus puts it. It will vomit you out because you've become so disgusting to it. And the Ark of the Covenant, it's carried off as well. At least that's at least the latest point it would be carried off. It might have gotten robbed by an Egyptian earlier, but that's a side story. 
Yeah, yeah. And they actually, in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, they actually reference Shishak, which you can read about in the Bible, who actually plundered the temple right after um, Solomon died. He's like, ooh, power vacuum. He kind of comes in and they kind of do like a raid on the temple and rob a bunch of stuff. But it doesn't seem like they get the ark, even though myth has said they might have gotten the ark because you see it mentioned later on in Second Chronicles. Um, but nonetheless, every single identifiable mark is taken from you. Everything that you put your faith in, your hope in, and the sign of God's presence, it's stripped from you. And that's why 587 BC is so absolutely devastating. It's not just the destruction of a city. That's bad. But it's that everything God has promised you. It's like if you found the bones of Jesus and realized that the whole story of the cross was a sham and that the Bible was written by Martians and, uh, you, you know, I mean, just kind of start heaping it up. What do you do when every single thing that serves as the foundation of your faith destroyed? That's what the prophet Jeremiah is about. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up more on that next week. But here's what I'd like you to do at your tables. I'd like you to read Jeremiah 7 together and collectively, okay? You know, you could do it out loud if you want. I mean, that, that's really cool. But what I want you to do is just kind of take this mind map here and see how Jeremiah 7 fits into it and just try to flush out some of the implications of this together and what Jeremiah has to do. And then that's it for today, guys. So, you know, get your coffee. We're, we're good to go. If you have kids in the rock, don't forget to pick them up around a quarter till, things like that. Um, flush that out at your tables as long as that takes you. And thanks for coming today. We'll pick up again next Sunday. God bless.